Hello everyone. Welcome to Red Start, a Marxist educational series by Red Star DSA, where we gather to read and discuss foundational socialist works and talk about how we can apply them to our own organizing. The following is a recording from August 2022 from Comrade Gregg's session on George Jackson's Blood in My Eye. You will hear his introduction to Jackson and the text, as well as the follow-up questions and answers portion of the event. If you'd like to hear more about our upcoming Red Start sessions, go to bit.ly slash redstartreg. here and it's not the best edited video but it's got every bit from this longer video that i wanted in there so please make do with the cuts and then if you want the full 27 minute videos on youtube and it's fantastic it's a great supplement to what we're going to do tonight i think it's my family my mother my father my brother um they were intended to familiarize them with the situation i was faced with here of course, here in prison, we see the repression, the exploitation, the victimization of uh, lower class. In 61, Jackson was 19 years old. And he received the indeterminate sentence of one year to life. Well, I was incarcerated under the line. I could have done one year and been released. I've done 10. That's more time than anybody in the state has ever done on the one line. I went through all the processes. I tried to get out. Uh, I went to school, program. But now all the time, I'm studying. I think that I'd fit them. It would help the community. Those on the right saw him as the most powerful threat in the prison system. I think racism is a control device, control mechanism, an atmosphere whereby they control him, control him. Black is just a continuation. He was the true revolutionary, the black communist guerrilla in the highest state of development. I'd be the last one to say this happened. Uh, I had suicide. I'm certain that Johnson felt that uh, the police would have some concern, would give some concern to the lives of those five civilians. 
I'm thinking that Jonathan was trying to demonstrate, trying to demonstrate to the public, to the people, just how uh, he felt that these problems could be solved. Was the incident for which you're charged now, was it a revolutionary act on your part? You asked me to consent to something? Yeah. And the you are, did, did you feel that? Look, uh, uh, one of the most important elements of guerrilla warfare is maintaining safety. I have given nobody until uh, you know it's been proven, and they'll never be able to prove anything like that. All right, folks, thank you very much. That was a brief kind of rundown. There's a lot of good footage of George Jackson because. For the book, prior to Blood in My Eyes, Soledad Brother, he became quite a well-known figure and cause celeb on the left. So we're going to get started with the actual presentation right now. And I just wanted to thank everybody for coming tonight. If you ended up on this call but have not registered yet, you can do that now. You got the link. Otherwise, go to bit.ly slash redstartreg, all one word. You can be notified about the next session. We got some really good stuff coming up that someone else is going to plug later. And then you can visit Red Start Cues to see more details about this summary. And here's our mission statement. Uh, We believe that political education is and must remain core to the socialist project, which is why we're hosting this education series. And our times, you'll be notified when they are. It is monthly. We'll be gathering to read and discuss foundational socialist works and talk about how we can apply them to our own organizing. With that, let's get into this week's text. So for this text, I decided to steal a little bit from our brothers at PSL because I wrote a whole introduction that came with the text and I didn't want to write a whole nother one, but I wanted to offer you a different perspective and see what other revolutionary socialist organizations are doing. And I also listened to the PSL podcast, which I thought was interesting. They did a brief like 10 minute introduction of this work as well, which I thought was I didn't, you know, I, it's not, I didn't agree with their analysis all the way, but it's interesting to see what other tendencies are thinking. Anyway, so PSL decided to kick off their hashtag Black August, looking at Black revolutionaries, celebrating Black revolutionaries in August with George Jackson. He was their number one choice. And I think you'll see it was for a good reason if you're unfamiliar with his work so far. But here's how they kicked him off. Okay. They wrote, revolutionary political prisoner George Jackson was a field marshal of the Black Panther Party while he was incarcerated in San Quentin Prison in California. In fact, he became a top recruiter, top educator for the Black Panther Party. Prior to that, and this is not from them, but this was in the introduction, he was a member of the Black Guerrilla Family, an organization he started with two other inmates. George was convicted of a armed robbery in 1961 at 19 years old and sentenced for one to life. He listened to his lawyer. He pleaded guilty. And as he said in the video, served the longest ever one to life sentence that anybody served. So it's pretty glaringly obvious that he was a political prisoner. And his plight really did bring a lot of eyeballs onto the prison system at that time. So he spent the next 11 years incarcerated. Seven and a half of those years were spent in solitary with a lot of his conditions. And he explains them in Blood in My Eye if you read the whole book and in Soledad Brother, the previous book that maybe a little bit better known, he describes those conditions and is just outright torture, torturous conditions. And people love to bring up the term gulag a lot. Well, thinking of the positions that George Jackson found himself in for stealing allegedly $76. And you can see that um, 
the real Gulag archipelago is right here in the United States of America, and it targets Black, Brown, and Native peoples, and it's disgusting. And George really did open up just a whole new conversation on that at the turn of the 60s into the 70s. In prison, George's political fire was ignited, and he became an inspiration to other revolutionaries of his generation and within our generation. And PSL ends their blurb with Black liberation lies as it always has in the hands of the conscious and organized masses. Black August requires us to study, train, fight, and in the words of George Jackson, do what must be done. Discover your humanity and your love of revolution. All right. So that is how we got kicked off uh, by PSL's little blurb. And uh, now we're going to get into the book itself, Blood in My Eye. I'm going to just start it off with my takeaways from this book. You know, this is one of the most passionate, well-written, clearly written political works that I've ever read in my life. It's got an epistolary format, which means it is written mostly as predominantly as letters to people. The only way he could get his message out was to write his letters to his lawyers. So if you look at the text and says, dear Greg, wasn't writing it to me. Apparently his lawyer's name was Greg. Um, but if you read Soledad Brother, a lot of the, the letters are written to his family members, and, it, and you get to see the formation of a revolutionary in real time. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. Okay. So George Jackson is writing this book, Blood in My Eye, as the domestic socialist revolutionary movement faced body blow after body blow, right? It's not like Soledad Brother when the Panthers are cresting and things are looking up, right? And they're forging international solidarity with China, and there is this feeling of momentum. No. Blood in my eye is when the unraveling has started to happen. Malcolm X has been killed. Martin Luther King has been killed. The Black Panthers are seeing their party attacked on all sides. He joined as prison marshal. And the Panthers at that point started to get infiltrated. COINTELPRO, there was vicious repression. And a lot of internal contradictions were bubbling up to the surface. Kwame Turi, the great revolutionary who was former SNCC, SNCC, moved to Africa. Angela Davis, the Black Panther, faced charges for the very courthouse shootout in which George's brother Jonathan died. And Chairman Fred Hampton himself was assassinated by a Chicago PD Red Squad with possible involvement but by the FBI. I mean, I think clear involvement by the FBI. They were definitely involved in surveilling him, whether Chicago PD and District Attorney Hanrahan jumped the gun, so to speak, is unclear, but it was definitely up to the highest levels of government. And Hoover were very privy to that and crushing what they called the Black Messiah. So basically, the socialist movement was on the run. A lot of people were turning to tune in and drop out or whatever the hell the hippies said, right? It became more of an individualist liberal movement at this point, And the hardcore revolutionaries were starting to go underground. Don't know how the weather was under there, but we'll see. And so George Jackson poured all of his passion perception and political acumen into this series of letters. And Blood in My Eye is what I call a handbook, a manual. It's also a diagnosis. And I believe, my argument is it's relevant, as relevant today as it was when it was written. And a lot of people don't agree with that because they think he's talking about revolutionary conditions. But what he's talking about, to me, is the actual political character of the United States of America, which has not changed from this time period, right? The organizational structure of the left has changed. Right. But the actual environment, the actual situation we find ourselves in has not. And if I'm talking too fast, I will slow down. I'm sorry about that. I'm very excited. Okay. So basically, this is a text from another time. But the chapter we're going to read today, the final chapter is after the revolution has failed. 
The fascists are on the march. The contradictions of capitalist society are laid bare for all to see. And it's just a matter of showing. And that is why George Jackson wrote this. And that is what I gleaned from this text, an ability to explain to people why things are the way they are and try to offer partial solutions to how to get out of it. So I do see this as like an instructional text. And I I hope other people get that as well. Okay. So we're going to move on to the next slide. Okay. And there's the crest of the wave, right? Sorry for the stupid graphics. They're not my forte. It's not my passion, graphic design. So George Jackson was incarcerated at the dawn of a whole new era for uh, Black Americans and the left as a whole. And the beginning, the civil rights movement was galvanizing the nation. The anti-imperialism was on the rise. Colonies across the world threw off the imperial yoke and third world nationalists, many of them overly socialist movements, came into power. As an incarcerated Black man, seeing himself as a political prisoner, he went through this prolonged period of painful radicalization. If you read Soledad Brother, you will see how he has these these dialogues with his parents, right? And he talks to them about his situation. He politicizes his his parents and engages in this dialogue, offering this keen kind of perception of the dynamics governing the world. And it's just beautiful to read and painful to read as well. I mean, you do get a taste for that in Blood and Mile, though not really in the section that we're reading. Okay. And I just want to, before we move on, I want to talk about my comrade Natalie did a great job on Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. That heavily, and you'll see Fanon pictured right there, Fanon, I'm sorry, that heavily influenced George Jackson's writing. And I think that if you've read both, you can see, and he did later on in this text, he does call himself Marxist-Leninist, Maoist, Fanonist, which I think is a fantastic tag. I just think it's great that he put it in there, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but anyway, okay. And there's, of course, Chairman Mao, who is very influential on the the Black Panthers and on George Jackson. And you can see that in this text as well. Okay. But I wanted to start off our reading tonight with something you probably haven't read. This is from five years prior to the book that we read. It is an excerpt from Soledad Brother. And I see this, and you don't have to agree with me, as a crystallization of his burgeoning revolutionary ideology. And so I just wanted to quickly take a look at this passage. Dear Father, well, I guess you know that I'm aware that this is not the best of all possible lives. You also know that I thank you for trying to cushion the shocks and strains that history has made it our lot to have to endure. But the make-believe game has ended now. I don't think it necessary for me to burden myself with listing strains we've endured. You are intelligent enough to know. At each phase of this long train of tyrannies, we have conducted ourselves in a very meek and civilized manner with only polite pleas for justice and moderation, all to no avail. We have shown a noble indisposition to react with a passion that each new oppression engenders. But any fool should be able to see that this cannot be allowed to continue. Any fool should be able to see that the nature allows no such imbalances as this to exist for long. We have petitioned for judicial redress. We have remonstrated, supplicated, demonstrated, and prostrated ourselves before the feet of our self-appointed administrators. We have done all that we can do to circumvent the eruption that now comes on apace. The point of no return in our relationship has long been passed. I know what must and will take place, so I follow my ends through to their most glorious conclusion. Don't make me waste my time and energy winning you to a position that you should already support with all your sympathies. The same forces that have made your life miserable, the same forces that have made your life senseless and unrewarding threaten me and all our posterity. I know the way out. If you cannot help, sit back and listen. Watch. 
You are charged with the responsibility of acknowledging the truth, my friend, and supporting it with whatever means, no matter how humble, are in your power. I am charged to right the wrong, lift the burden from the backs of future generations. I will not shrink from my duties. I will never falter or waver before the task, but we will go forward to resolve this conflict once and forever. Of all the 20,000 known years of advanced civilization, the years that are now coming on will be the most momentous. George. And I wanted to start our discussion of the text with that, because I think you're seeing the man who wrote Blood Am I born in this moment of dialogue with his father. A lot of great revolutionaries write in dialogue, and George is no different. Sometimes when he's pissed at his dad, he calls him Robert. When he wants to influence his dad, he calls him father. And sometimes when he wants to mess with his dad, he calls him Lester, which is his middle name and his father's middle name. And this man is using the letter as a weapon. He had to be very careful about what he could say in his letters because they were all monitored and censored by the Department of Corrections, except for ones to his lawyer. Right. So he really had to be careful writing to family members. So you'll see this burgeoning revolutionary optimism, right? Very general, very macro scale coming to fruition here. And you can see why this book became legendary and he became a cause celeb along with the other two Soledad brothers. So I don't want to spend too much time going there. It's 724 right now. I'm going to kind of go through just some of the bones of the text that we're reading today, but I'm going to kind of speed over it just because I feel like you guys are going to get into it in the rooms. All right. So I think that a lot of people will be interested in discussing this. And there's obviously applications to today because we're coming after the crest of an abolitionist movement. And we all have different takes on how politically serious that abolitionist movement was. But I really do think there was a lot of radical momentum and there were a lot of people out in the streets and then something happened, right? And I think that George Jackson offers us a little glimpse as to why things went down the way they did with the Black Lives Matter movement and with the George Floyd protests a couple of years ago, the dawn of COVID. So anyway, you know, we got to think about how this movement was co-opted and defanged by the Democratic Party using the specter of Trump, using the advent of Joe and Kamala, right? And Jackson in his time 50 years ago rightfully challenged liberals and reformists of his time to show just how justice could really coexist with actually existing American fascism. Obviously, people will debate about, is this actually fascist? Well, we're going to get into it. But here's my take on why Jackson, what Jackson would say about that movement failing. You cannot reform a fascist system, right? There is no way to salvage the American system as, as it is currently constituted. The entire system of policing and incarceration is designed to crush the working class. Bourgeois law protects property relationships, not social relationships, is an exact quote from our text. Okay. So imprisonment is seen as class struggle to Jackson. He was a black man in prison for his entire adult life. And in the prison cell, he saw what they were. These prisons are a political tool of control of the working class. And he doesn't talk about Native American issues a lot in Blood in My Eye, but I think it's pretty clear if you look at the two groups with the highest incarceration rates, we have Native American people are incarcerated at an even higher percentage than African American people. But those two groups are incarcerated at such a high percentage. Those are the two groups owed the most by the capitalist class that has seized and created and promulgated this imperial capitalist form of sham democracy for centuries, right? It's developed now into this kind of imperialist stage, especially as the, let's say, the hegemon post-World War II. And George Jackson offers us 
a definition of fascism. And he also identifies its three primary faces. And so we're going to look at that in just a second. But I did want to say it's very important understanding George Jackson that he does see the black proletarian, the black worker, and the black lumpen proletarian. That's where he has similarities to Fanon. He believes that even black working class people who are not working, who are criminalized and otherwise shut out of the respectable economy are also revolutionary subjects and could be part of an urban vanguard of black revolutionary movement that would include other working class people. I kind of, if you think of the Fred Hampton model in Chicago, the Rainbow Coalition, a lot of Jackson's writing sounds very similar to that, although he is speaking as an incarcerated person and he is you know, not engaged in coalition building in prison in a deliberate way, but he is in a de facto way because he is defending white inmates and brown inmates as well in prison. Uh, he came to the defense of all prisoners who were being abused by guards and offering a kind of revolutionary ideology to all who could take it, even though these prisons in which he was, Soledad Prison and San Quentin, were heavily segregated by race, which is a tactic used that he talks about at length by the pigs. Okay, so we're going to go to the next slide, the three faces of fascism. Sorry if I feel like I'm rushing. Okay, but the first phase, the out of power, right? And he calls it, it tends to be revolutionary and subversive, and it's attractive at that point. And you see these things, to me, going on simultaneously. This is the 4chan fringe, right, where the recruitment happens, where fascism is something that's exciting, youthful, energetic, and offers some kind of escape from the real crushing monotony of capitalist life. Second phase, in power but not secure, the sensational aspect of fascism, the Mussolini-type fascism, Proud Boys-style fascism. See, I think we have all three of these in the United States at once, and they kind of feed into each other. That's what happens under third phase fascism, in power and securely so. And this is perhaps his most controversial assertion for the modern left in this work. It is the third phase of fascism, that America is inherently fascistic, right? And that after World War II, the fascist takeover was complete. We absorbed Nazi Germany's fascist kind of technicians and technocrats, spies and scientists, and we adopted it wholesale in a wonderful mutualistic fascist collaboration, seeing as how the Nazis were totally inspired by American slavery. Right. So it kind of comes a full circle. The fascists are brought back into and incorporated into the new core of fascism. Okay. And he does a great job of describing the contradictory nature of fascism, which may help us make sense of what we're seeing today with the modern blood and soil movement. Okay. He says the ideals of obedience and creativity, authority and freedom are so contradictory of each other, so mutually exclusive that the ideology of fascism can never be taken seriously intellectually. But it must be taken seriously at bayonet point. It uses force, right? So fascism, once it's in power, is inherently contradictory because it's all about now consolidating power within the state, which is counter to the way it had started as an anti-institutional. So you see in America's modern culture war, right, how there's a kind of liberal cultural hegemony, but the most overt fascists in America, right, have to rail against it constantly and play victims all the time. And they have gone through the courts to kind of help instigate their fascism. They've got used gerrymandering, other ways of suppressing votes, things like that. And their partners in the Democratic Party have totally enabled this and are currently, you know, they played up Trump, right? Hillary's campaign played up Trump as a candidate because he'd be easy to beat, right? And fundraise against. And they allowed Roe to go, Roe v. Wade to go for decades 
uh, without codifying it, without securing it, right, as a fundraising tool. And now they are going around and they're hyping up far-right QAnon-style politicians because they are easy to fundraise against, they're easy to defeat, allegedly, in general elections, head-to-head elections, and they undermine Republican credibility. This is simply modern American fascism kind of working to maintain hegemony and suppress any nascent socialist liberatory movements. Okay, so these are all my opinions, and you don't have to agree with me, and I would love for the conversation to go from there. But I do want to make a comment about internationalism. Okay, he discusses on page 25 of our reading the international proletarian movement for liberation, the post or the anti-colonial, anti-imperialist movement. And then he kind of talks about fascism in the Americas and in Latin America. And he definitely is very dead on about what transpires in Chile shortly after this book was published, right? So he's got a very astute analysis, not just of domestic politics. George Jackson is not blinkered. He's got a very internationalist perspective. Unfortunately, in our excerpt of Blood in my eye, we don't get to engage with it, but it is there. So you can look for it. But I apologize. I, I just had to keep it at 30 pages. Okay, one final note. Before we head to breakout rooms, I want to share one last thought. This is an electrifying book. Uh, Jackson is a gifted polemicist. So upon finishing this book, I certainly felt a lot, but it was upon rereading the book, right? Especially for this task of leading this discussion, that I learned so much practical knowledge. So it's a galvanizing, powerful text, right? But please do focus on its analysis, the content of Jackson's theories, right? Please do focus on what he's actually saying, because there is a lot of scholarly analysis of fascism in this book and on the failure of revolution and on the failure of the left in the 60s and 70s in the United States and previous left movements, okay? We got to ask ourselves, do you agree with him? Where do you differ? Was he more of a product of his time? And how much can we learn from this half-century-old broadside against carceral capitalism, racism in America? So I'll leave you with that. Thank you guys very much for listening to me. I do want to post this presentation for anybody interested in it, and we'll figure that out, hopefully, because there's links in there. But I appreciate everybody's time, and I hope you have a great discussion, and I'll, I'll see you in the rooms. So what we're going to do now is we are going to have people type questions due to the fact that this is recorded and we don't want chaos. We're just going to have people type their questions. I hope that works. Hopefully we'll have a robust panel to answer questions because I am not an authority on this text, although I will read it again and hopefully get better at it because I'm going to be teaching it to high school students. Okay. So go ahead and start typing questions, please. Ooh, this is a great question. One question, why define fascism? What use is that to us? I love how confrontational that question is. Well, does any Red Star members want to field this one? Ooh, Red Star itself is stacking. Go ahead, Red Star. That's me, Matty. I think there's one thing to, there's many components of this. One is that we can't unilaterally disarm around the usage of this word. Fascism is used as like a scary 
boogeyman word by liberals or whatever, and they have an, a bad definition of it. They're going to say Trump's a fascist. This thing's fascist. And then also conservatives call things fascist. So if they're going to use this to some rhetorical effect, then we should have a correct and useful definition of it as well to say, well, this is not what that is. This is this other thing. It's about capitalism. It's about a certain type of decay. It's about these certain types of oppressive institutions. It's not about this thing that the liberals are talking about where there's a mean guy who's doing populism, which also maybe turns Bernie into a fascist. So just to combat the rhetoric, we have to be part of that conversation and have our own good, correct version of that. I think that's part of it. There's a separate set of reasons why we need to talk about this because of the recognition of this phenomenon, which is only, I think, understandable in the sort of Marxist lens, where it's a particular type of capitalism and decay, and it's trying to do a thing which is keep the gears of capitalism churning. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons, I think, but I think it's it's important to recognize the phenomenon. I think it's important to understand it, and it's important to be part of the conversation and say the right things. Yeah. And in our group, we did discuss why it is very important to impress upon people that the revolutionary line is the correct line, that this is an unsalvageable, inherently unsalvageable country and system, right? We are revolutionary and that is what we believe. And if you explain it as secure fascism, it becomes easier to see that this cannot be reformed. This is not something that can be reformed. It ultimately needs to be replaced and a movement must be built that can replace it. And if you follow George Jackson's logic, that becomes apparent. Anyway, but yeah, I appreciate that. And then next we're going to go to, oh, wow, we're going to go to Rose. Rose, you're going to regalianism us with uh, Hegelianism. Is that right? I can give it a shot. Okay, really briefly, Marx was very influenced by Hegel. Hegel, basically, his main contribution to Marx is that a focus on process, that things aren't just one thing or the other, things react with one another. The conflict between two things is the two things themselves, right? That's the dialectic. Two things are opposed and in that opposition continually shape one another. This is a good thing. This is helpful. Hegel, though, was an idealist. So he's not focused on the material. He's not focused on the real world. He's thinking about this in terms of ideas. He thinks of like this grand march of history with ideas that argue and shape one another. And eventually we're going to get to the perfect idea. This is wrong, according to Marxists, because it's we base things on real material conditions. The ideas come out of our real material conditions. So when someone's Hegelian, they're focused on the idea instead of the reality. And that is my best shot. If I anyone thinks I'm wrong, you can do it yourself. I think we only have time for for one take on Hegelianism today. Sorry, that was well. I didn't I didn't listen to be honest, Rose. I'm sorry, but I'm sure it was great. Okay, so there's a question here. You talked a bit about the process of America absorbing Nazi Germany into itself. What did that process look like, and how did it affect the world? Wow, for somebody who teaches about this and talks about it a lot, I actually don't have that many details, feel free to jump in. I'm just going to outline it. But anyway, there's this famous thing, Operation Paperclip, that people talk about where Nazi scientists were brought over to the United States of America and kind of absorbed into our weapons programs. That's more famous one. Their choice was, well, you could go on trial or you could come here. But more so than that, a lot of it was done on the anti-communist level of spycraft. 
right? So the OSS, that name is a little sus if you ask me, the OSS became the CIA and American spies became obsessed with hunting down communists and preventing communist movements and socialist movements and even some nationalist movements that they just kind of lumped in with these movements. So basically, the Nazis were really motivated as well at finding and repressing socialistic movements. And so it was a match made in heaven and they had the leverage and they absorbed a lot of the the German intelligence agencies, especially when it came to Central and South America, because that's where a lot of Nazis fled. And if you listen to Truanon, they had an episode on an actual Nazi eugenics-based colony in South America that was very disturbing to hear about. And we employed Nazi killers, counter-revolutionaries in Cuba and throughout Latin America. And yeah, it's it's all there and most of it is declassified or a lot of it's declassified. And there's really good books on the subject, The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot and Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins. And there's just tons and tons. Those are just some recent ones, but there's way more about that. And it always leads to something else awful. It's just this endless, when you put Nazis in your employ, bad things happen. Who to thunk it, huh? Anyway. Okay. Do we have another question? Yes. This question is, do you agree with Jackson that the incarcerated class is a or the revolutionary subject? If so, how do you practically see that class engaging with the non-incarcerated proletariat? This is an interesting question. I'm going to give my brief answer and then I'll open it up. But briefly, I think we saw it happen two years ago. We saw in the anti-policing and abolition movement, the kind of germ of this movement. It's not just prisoners themselves as revolutionary subjects, but also people who love prisoners, people whose communities are impacted by having a lot of people in prison creating this network. I do think that is a very fertile and important area for revolutionary movement. And that's why the Democrats had to completely sell them out, crush them, get rid of any defunding or abolition rhetoric, and actually go all the way to refunding the police because they are fascists and fascist enablers. And uh, they had to crush that. But we got more people out in the streets for the George Floyd protests and Breonna Taylor protests and saying defund and abolish. And they used Trump and they used all the cudgels they could about crime. They even had a recall election here in San Francisco for our DA based on the total concert and lockstep of the ruling class with the media and the politicians of both major parties getting together and deciding that the George Floyd protests were too dangerous and that business as usual is what everybody wants, right? Because this stable fascism is always going to try to shore itself up. So yes, long story short, yes, they are, but not just them, right? Also the people fighting for them every day. Anybody else want to jump in on this one? Bill, I see your question, so I will answer it. In the intro of the text, it says the reading will stand the test of time as an indispensable American socialist text and blueprint for revolutionary organization. What exactly are you talking about, given that the reading did not advocate democratic centralism or any form of internal democracy? So I think this is an important question from Bill here, because what he's asking about is that this is, in many ways, kind of grassroots prison organizing and urban guerrilla warfare focused book. But I do think we need to look beyond his immediate political goals and into his definition of fascism and his analysis of the American state as it is constituted when we look at the question of 
rebuilding a vanguard party and how that is constituted and how it governs. Because you can, Bill, as you know, he is not advocating for a Dem-sense system in his current uh, revolutionary writings. However, what he is talking about is the very real existing socialist states of Stalin and Mao and how they were conducting themselves in World War II and after. And he's talking about other revolutionary movements throughout the world. And he's not criticizing individual revolutionary movements in, in detail. He does quibble about certain things. But what he's really saying is that this global struggle against capital is a really important thing to be a part of. And that for the current stage, as he sees it in the American fascist system, this is the most effective set of tactics. And I do believe that he thinks that the Black Panther Party could form the core of that vanguard party and the broader movement, and that they would probably require some form of democratic centralism or some kind of overarching party discipline to do that. So I don't think he explicitly forbids that eventuality. I just don't think it's a focus of this writing. But feel free, folks, if anybody else from Red Star wants to jump in and correct me. How much more time do we have for questions? Do we have time for one more or no? Okay. And there's a clarification that George does advocate for democratic centralism part of the book, not including the repacket. Okay. So there is, thank you. Let's see, our minds together are so much more powerful. Okay. So there's an important point about labor unions in here. At points, George discusses the cooperation of the labor unions with fascists in Italy. And if the U.S. is currently fascist, what should the left's orientation towards unions that work with the state now be? I think this is a fantastic question. And I think it's extremely relevant for DSA, which does a lot of work in unions. And a lot of these unions, if you follow them up, go towards total enablers and capitalist cronies and democratic stool pigeons, like my own union, which if you follow it all the way up, goes to Randy Weingart, the president of AFT, who is a big time capitalist and Democratic Party stooge. And I think that the solution is clear. We need to go where the workers are and focus on building efficient workplace democracies from the ground up. In the text, it talks about people organizing where they are. And it sounds like cliche, but George Jackson was very clear about that. You have to have some buy-in, some relevancy to the people you're trying to organize. You have to have some authenticity if you're going to do that. So to organize prisoners, you had to be a prisoner. To organize teachers, you got to be a teacher, et cetera, right? It sounds like our old rank and file strategy is DSA as a whole. But really what it means is that you're building community where you are and you're impacting your own people with this revolutionary ideology. That's the way it spreads most authentically and effectively. It's a dialogue, it's a discussion, it's a back and forth, right? It's a connection. And that is how these social movements are built and these socialist movements become successful is with these deep and abiding bonds. The Black Panthers went into the community, they forged bonds, the Rainbow Coalition forged bonds between communities, right? And this is a blueprint for success. When DSA tried to organize Anchor Steam, we didn't go out there with a bullhorn and say, hey, motherfuckers, you need a union. You're getting screwed, right? People were working there, asked for help. People started working there, helping out, right? It was a big collaborative thing. And that's how it's going with Starbucks right now. And that's how these things happen. And these unions need to be changed. But that's going to be very hard to do without a political vision, which you know comes in the form of a party. And I think that there is going to have to be a parallel evolution of a party and these continued organizing efforts, because you're right, liberal reformism is just going to lead to increased standards of living for workers in the short term and amount to nothing, just like it did in the 30s and just like it did 
in the 60s before the 70s reaction. And so this is something that we really need to be aware of. And I think that this text does discuss that. Okay. Does anybody else want to jump in here? I think uh, that's all the questions that we have in the chat. So we have time for a quick question, and then we got to move it on to Michael, who's going to talk about what's coming up next month with Red Start. Michael, do you want to do that now? Yeah, I'll go for it. Next month's a banger. We're doing Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism by our boy Lenin. Really important book, especially now, considering the Russia-Ukraine conflict. There's a lot of people arguing about is Russia imperialist? Is Russia not imperialist? Is the US the only imperialist power? What is imperialism? Why are we defining it? Lenin gets into all of this. There's pretty firm answers in this. He predicts an economic system that was sort of coalescing around the time that he was alive, but like really didn't come to full fruition until after he had died. And it really shaped the entire planet. Yeah, John Lennon. John Lennon wrote about imperialism. <laughs> And he led the Soviet Union. And he, so basically he like coalesced this like idea of this like economic system and he was right. And it really coalesced the way that he thought it was going to. And so we're gonna be doing it in a two part because A, it's a little longer. Each one will still only be 30 pages. So pretty manageable. And Alyssa and Red Star will be running the first one. Wonderful, like fantastic organizer who like has a great concept of Lenin. And then I'm gonna be running the second one which I'm super stoked about because it's one of my favorite books. But yeah, Greg, take it away. All right. Thank you. And we have another question. Final question here. Jackson advocated minority use of violence, guns and rocket launchers by outlaws and lumpen elements. But the Bolsheviks advocated against violence until the majority of the working class had been won over across the country. And this is a good question. It's something that we discussed in our room. So what we're talking about is a revolutionary movement in a kind of traditional feudal empire with the, just a very tiny proletariat in the case of the Russians. And then you're talking about in Jackson's formulation, a fascistic, a stable fascistic society in the United States of America. So I think his idea and his brother's idea was that you would need some more of this propaganda of the deed to foment a kind of a full-scale rebellion. And indeed, it was going on in multiple places in the United States. And ultimately, you know, a lot of critics, the PSL came out and said it was ineffective, right? And Jonathan died at 17 years old. And George himself was, was murdered in prison. And that this type of revolutionary violence at this stage was not effective. I would push back against that and say that it's very difficult to actually criticize people in situations such as their own in a country as developed with the reactionary class as developed as the United States. And people were throwing stuff against the wall to see what worked. And I think the, the Panthers learned a lot about shootouts. The Rainbow Coalition learned a lot about shootouts in Chicago and armed clashes with police. Some were effective, some were ineffective. Some jailbreaks worked, some did not, right? And I think the overall failure was uh, much more of a macro level of the broader left rather than these smaller tactical miscalculations. So I know what you're saying, but I think that they were really trying to bring about to heighten a very revolutionary moment in the United States in the 60s and 70s. And that's my perspective looking back on it right now. But I do think I do think that the American working class can get a lot from this book. I think a lot of workers will be get their eyes opened up by by this, by these teachings. And I, I think that the urban warfare chapters may be things that people might find challenging, but just from tactical standpoints, can be very useful, not even at the high stakes of, of weaponized conflict, but just for for sheer survival 
averting kettling and infrastructural questions, possibly. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying I think there's a lot to learn from the entire book, even though the situation at the moment makes certain actions in the book undertaken by Jackson and his partners not necessarily practical. 